I think Brian says, the last time I'm going to play it, I'm going to play it all the way. <laughs> anyway, uh, so several years back, I had this opportunity to uh, travel to Colorado and uh, somebody likes Colorado. Good. Uh, we, were, we were camping, uh, hiking, hunting way back in the mountains. Uh, we were there for several days and on our last full day in the mountains, uh, my cousin, uh, I say he got lost, but he would say he just got turned around a little bit. Uh, but he, he basically got lost to the point where I got dark. And I don't know if you know this, but when you're in the mountains and not on trails, uh, you really can't walk off the mountain in the dark because you might walk off a cliff. So he had to sort of set up camp and just sort of hang out in the, in the woods. And then uh, in the wee hours of the morning, the full moon came up and he could finally see well enough to uh, find his way off of the mountain down to the valley uh, where the road was. But by the time he got down there, we had long since gone back to camp because we just figured he was there for the night. Uh, so we had to walk back to camp, which, if I remember right, was about 18 miles. So after a long day of hiking in the mountains, he had an 18-mile walk to get back to camp. And what he said to us when he got back is, the only thing that kept me going was the thought of a cold drink out of the stream. We didn't have any ice. We didn't have any electricity. And so we would take the, the drinks and we'd put them in the mountain stream and the, the you know, spring water would keep the, the drinks cold. Now, the sad reality is we drank his drink because it was the last day and he wasn't there anyway. Uh, but that's the story for another time. But the whole point being, what kept him going was the thought of something refreshing, right? Something that we, so he has this long walk, he kept it going, he kept his mind on the the better thing to come. And I, I say all that because that's kind of a, like a, an analogy of life itself. There's a book out there that's called Man's Search for Meaning. It's written by Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl was actually in the concentration camps as part of the Holocaust. He's a psychiatrist. And, and he writes this book about his observations of mankind in the concentration camps. And what he says is the minute someone in the concentration camp loses all hope, they would pass away that the only way they could survive so much trauma and difficulty was to have a sliver, even if it was just a sliver of hope, right? The, the scripture actually tells us, the Bible tells us that without hope, without revelation, right? With, with, without this, this picture of something better, the people will actually perish. Viktor Frankl wrote these words. He said, woe to him who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. We're in the final week here of Revelation, and Revelation 21 may be one of the single most important chapters in the Bible for followers of Jesus. It's one of those passages that you should sit with, that you should meditate on, that you should get to the point where you understand it, where you can see the vision of Revelation 21 in your mind's eye. It's a vision of hope that each of us needs to hold on to in our darkest hours. Sometimes 
it's the only thing that we can hold on to. Of the new heaven, the, the new earth, when, when Christ returns, when things are redeemed and reconciled. So my encouragement to you this morning, whether you're here in the room or you're online, my encouragement is sit with Revelation 21 often. Go back to it, read it until it becomes just ingrained in your mind, ingrained in your heart. It's an incredibly important chapter for you to just see when you are coming against difficult seasons. The purpose of this entire letter, the letter of Revelation, and especially these last two chapters, is to encourage the followers of Jesus to remain faithful, to be confident, to have hope that there is something else coming. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to grab your Bibles right now. Bible's under your seat. We're uh, at chapter uh, 21, which is page 1041. If you're using your journal, we're on page 78. I know in the Bible's under your seat, it's just three pages from the back, so you should be able to find it real quickly. But this is the last two chapters. And again, this is the, the closing chapters of our series on Revelation. And I'm just going to focus on the opening few verses. But if you look at verse 1 of chapter 21, it reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Have you ever thought about the fact that there's going to be a new heaven. We spend a lot of time thinking about the new earth. We spend a lot of time, if you've been in Christendom, talking about there's going to be this, this new earth. Things are going to be different from us. But I don't hear very much talk about a, a new heaven. If you read the rest of verse 1, it says, For the first heaven, the current heaven, the existing heaven that is right now, and the new earth had passed away. The current status quo, whatever that is, will be no more. Right now, present tense, there is a heaven. Remember what Jesus told the thief on the cross when the, when the thief gave testimony that Jesus was who he said he was? And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? So there is this place of paradise where, where the thief is, where those who are in Christ, who have passed away, where they are with Jesus in paradise. But the people who are in paradise are longing for the new heaven. Now, you got to think about that for a minute. They are in a place of, of perfection, of, of glory, of, of, of presence, but yet they are longing for the day when this intimacy between God and man is different, is changed, when, when, when there is no separation at all between the sacred and the secular, when God is with the people and the people are with God. The objective of chapter 21 is to paint a picture in our minds and in our hearts with vivid detail of what is to come and just how glorious the new heaven and the new earth is. The problem is the rhetoric, the style of writing that John uses is, is often lost on us, but it would have been crystal clear to a first century reader. In ancient literature, powerful civilizations were described by their capital city 
right? And the, and the, the, the size of the capital city and the opulence of the capital city and the capital city became the, the, what epitomized this uh, powerful civilization. So great city. So you think about the, the Syrian empire and how great they were. They were known by the city of Nineveh. And if you read about the city of Nineveh, it has enormous walls. It covered this, this huge landscape. It was this, this incredible city that's described that epitomizes Syria. When it comes to Rome, it's epitomized by, or the, the, the Roman Empire, it's, it's epitomized by the city of Rome. It was actually called the eternal city. Great civilizations are characterized by the cities, and they're also characterized as beautifully adorned women. So the language of, 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 of describing a beautiful woman was often what described these cities and these civilizations. Rome was known as the woman sitting on seven hills. John uses the same rhetoric, the same tactic, if you will, to describe the new heaven and the new earth. It's a great city, and he'll describe the great city, and it is a beautiful woman. There's going to be a new order. There's going to be a, a new governing force, right? There's going to be in this new order, this new governing force, a holy city, a new Jerusalem that the passage says comes down out of heaven. It is going to be the eternal city. Every great city, every great civilization that was established by the gods prior could be described as Babylon, but this city comes down directly from God out of the heavens, and so there's no question in the minds of the reader that this is a holy city. And then he describes this new uh, people group as a bride adorned for her husband. More often than not, when I do weddings, there is this moment in every wedding where the, the doors are closed and everybody's finally in, right? And the music changes and the doors open and the bride steps into the doorway and she's wearing this incredible dress that she spent lots of time picking out and, and her hair is done just so and her makeup is done just so. And I can tell you, uh, more often than not, and I haven't thought of a better word, the groom gasps. It's a good gasp. At least I'm assuming it's a good gasp, right? But there is a moment where she takes his breath away, right? And it's most, it's more often than not, that's the moment that the groom cries. They don't always cry, but if they're going to, that seems to be the moment. They see their bride adorned, right? They see this woman, and they realize something is about to take place where we become one. I think it's fascinating if you just sit with that imagery, and, and we all know about weddings, we understand marriage, and, and now we're reading Revelation 21, and, and that's really what this is a picture of, but you know, marriage was meant to be a picture of Revelation 21, not the other way around, and if we do things the right way, the biblical way, there's something that's about to take place when it comes to intimacy between the bride and the husband, right? If we followed God's ways, 
they know each other, right? They are very familiar with each other, right? So, so similar, we know God, we're familiar with God, we have an interaction with God, but in the moment of the marriage, a level of intimacy increases. They will actually become spiritually and physically united, Right, and that's the picture of Revelation 21, that a new level, it doesn't mean we don't know God, it just means that we don't know God fully in the way that we will after this wedding. And I picture Jesus seeing his bride, the church, seeing you as a, as a follower of Jesus, seeing and, and gasping, right, and seeing the beauty of his bride and knowing that, that the intimacy is going to change from this day going forward. Look at verse 3. It says, behold, a dwelling place of God is with man. It's describing an intimacy that we, we can't even really fathom. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We don't become gods, we become one with God. If you're writing in your journals, I encourage you to circle the, the words um, dwelling place. It's actually, and then write a little line and write the word tabernacle. It's actually the word tabernacle, right? It means a tent. It means a place of dwelling, right? That God will actually live with us in this incredible picture of unity and oneness. I think the other thing that Revelation 21 serves to remind us is that this is God's world. The earth is his and everything in it. It's his creation and he is going to redeem this world and he is going to solve the human dilemma. Sin, amen, amen. Sin has made a mess and the return of Christ and this, this marriage union is going to set things straight. It's going to clean up the mess that sin has left. Without hope, without revelation, the people perish, but Revelation 21 is all about hope. Look at verse four. It says, in this new heaven, in this new earth. And then these statements that, that are about to be described, they're beyond our ability to truly comprehend. We can understand what the words say, but we have very, very limited ability to put ourselves into that place. In the new heaven and new earth, listen, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. And then it says, any more, forever and ever. I had the opportunity yesterday to go to a grad party for PJ Source. And for those of you who know the story, PJ's dad died in the line of duty a little over a decade ago. And it was a great party, but I left sad. I left with uh, my, just a, a catch in my throat and a tear in my eye because Paul didn't get to see PJ graduate. Paul didn't get to see PJ play football. Every time I went to one of PJ's football games, it just, it made me sad. I love watching PJ, but it just makes me sad that his dad didn't get to be there. It makes me sad that PJ 
didn't get to hang out with his dad. He was a cool man. Right? There's a, there's a sadness. There's a mourning that still exists a decade later over the loss of a friend and a dad and a husband. Right? None of that's going to exist anymore. The passage says in verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. The older I get, the more I, I think I understand why Jesus said we need to have the faith of a child. I think being a grandparent has given me the opportunity to observe more than survive. Right? When you have your own kids, you're just, <laughs> you're just holding on. And, right? Like, especially if you have multiple, it's, it's, it's a ride, right? But, but as a grandparent, I get to just sort of sit back and, and watch. And, it, and it's a beautiful thing. But one of the things that, that I love to see is just, look, my grandbabies believe that their mom and dad can fix anything. Right? No one can console them like their parents. And the scripture says, Behold, I am making all things new. And we need to have the faith of a child that says, I don't know when and I don't know how, but I'm believing Jesus for his words that he is making. And get this, making is present perfect and future tense. He is in the process of making all things new right now. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God, him as Jesus, was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself also perfect present and future tense, all things whether earth or in heaven. Reconciliation, the preparation for the rebuild it's it's happening now and it will happen in its fullness when Jesus returns and we need childlike faith in our Abba Father that he's going to do what he said he's going to do now I just want to give you kind of a, a little insight when you read chapter 21 and you're going to go read it later because I ask you to uh, you're going to get to verses 9 through 27 and basically what John the writer does is what he's been doing throughout this whole letter is he basically like hits the pause button and he says okay let me explain it this way. So we have these visions of John, and then all of a sudden it's like you're sort of reading the same vision, but it's a different vision. That's his writing style. I'm going to tell you about it like this, and then you say, well, here's another way of seeing it. And then he explains the exact same circumstances with a little different wording. So, right, we talked about the first way he explains the new heaven and new earth. He talks about this, this, this new city that's going to come down from heaven in a beautiful woman. Well, then he gets to the, the next section. He's explaining the exact same thing, but now he compares the new heaven and the new earth to Babylon. So if you want a good exercise, read chapter 17 and then read these verses in chapter 21, the, the, the nine through the end of the passage. And what you're gonna see is there's this direct comparison going on between the two. So in chapter 17, Babylon is described as a harlot. In chapter 21, it's the new Jerusalem and it's the bride. In chapter 17, Babylon is gaudy, the new Jerusalem is beauty. It's beautiful. Babylon is marked by sickness. The new Jerusalem by health and healing. There's a river and 12 trees that bear its fruit for healing in every single season. No more sickness. No more death, right? Babylon is marked by death. Jerusalem is life eternal. Babylon and Rome are described as eternal cities. But the new Jerusalem is the eternal 
city. Last observation about this last chapters. In verse 22, he says, and I saw no temple in the city. It's an easy phrase for us to read and just blow through real quick, but I'm telling you, for a first century reader, this was scandalous. Cities were known by their temples, right? The bigger the temple, the more uh, audacious the temple, the more glorious the temple, then the more uh, uh, worshipped the city itself was. Even Jerusalem was known at one time for its amazing, beautiful temple built by Solomon. So we read about ancient cities and we read about the walls and we, and we read about the temples to their gods. How could a great city have no temple? There was no need for a building, right? There was no need for a place to go to experience the power and the presence of God. There was no need for the people to gather together to, to worship God or to, to show their commitment to Jesus or one another. And the new heaven and the new earth, it is all filled with the very presence and power of God. Everyone in this new community lives in perfect unity with Jesus. The temple is all around us. It actually says the nations will worship. Don't miss that. There's still nations. But they all worship Jesus. It says the kings will bring glory to Jesus. There's still a, an order. There's still a people group. There's nations and there's kings, but they are all worshiping Jesus. It says nothing unclean will exist. Revelation 21 is describing a depth of intimacy that is beyond our wildest imagination. Look at verse 8. I love this. Jesus actually says to John, you should write this down. He says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the takeaway for the entire series. The words of Revelation are about victory in Jesus. Right? The, the thing that fascinates me about Revelation, when I talk about Revelation, when I've had conversations with you about it, there is so much focus on the mark of the beast. Do you know that there are more references to the mark of Jesus on his followers in Revelation than there is to the mark of the beast? It's, it's not about the beast. It's about Jesus. Right? That's what the story of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus and his victory. The scriptures say that if you've said yes to Jesus, you are marked, that you're actually sealed, that he's branded you. Revelation itself says when you say yes to Jesus, that he writes his name on your forehead. And then it says he writes a new name that, that only he knows on your forehead. You are marked by Jesus and for Jesus, if you have said yes to Jesus. Write these words down, for they are trustworthy. If something is trustworthy, it's incorruptible, it's reliable, it's dependable, it's true, it's unimpeachable. Trustworthy, it means it's worth 
staking your entire future on. These words are worth staking your entire life on. The word trustworthy in the Greek, it just means full of faith. It also means able to impart faith. The words of Revelation weren't weren't written to scare us. They were written to every believer in every generation to embolden us, to, to ennoble our faith. Right? Faith is the assurance of what's hoped for. Right? It's a conviction of things not seen. Revelation gives us great hope amidst great sorrow, amidst great pain, amidst great persecution. My prayer for you as we conclude the series on Revelation is that this would be a book that you would return to often with great anticipation, not with fear. Right, that that the words and the images would awaken your faith and cause you to go deeper and to, to have a greater anticipation of the return of Jesus. I had an interesting conversation before the service started. I've thought about this a lot as I've gone through the series, but if I were to get an honest response from many of you about Jesus' return, you'd say, I. I'm excited about Jesus' return, but I'm hoping he waits a little while because I want to graduate from high school. Right? I'm hoping he waits a little while because I want to finish college. I hope he waits a little while because I want to have a baby. I want to see my grandbabies grow up. We have, a, we have a, a long list of hopes, right? They're good hopes, right? And, but man, there is no way we would hope for any of those things if we had any comprehension at all of what Revelation 21 is telling us. Right, so if you find yourself saying, yeah, that would be great, but sink into 21. No, it's great, trust me. It's gonna be way better than, than anything you can think or imagine. Lord, I pray that you would awaken our spirits to the truths of revelation. I pray that you would give us a hope and a future even if we can't fully grasp it, even if we can't wrap our minds around it fully, that you would just give us a taste of the new heaven and the new earth. Pray that your kingdom would continue to come in ways that awaken our spirit for what's going to be. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. Amen. So the question is, where do we go from here. What's the follow-up to Revelation? I guess we finished the last book of the Bible. We don't have to preach anymore. No, not so much. (laughs) In light of everything that we've learned, what should we do? How should we live? Right? And the cool thing is we don't have to wonder. John has already answered the question for us. So most scholars believe that in the months following this apocalyptic revelation, the writing of revelation, the sending of this letter to the seven churches, that Paul or that John sits down and he writes 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Very short letters, but he's writing them to the same churches that got the book of Revelation. And what he's saying is, in light of everything I just told you about this apocalyptic moment about the new heaven and the new earth. Here's how you should live day to day. We've called this series that's starting next week, Hypocrite. 
And the reason we call it a hypocrite is because it serves to remind everyone in this room, everyone online, that we have the opportunity to become more congruent with what we say we believe and the way our lives happen, right? The, 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 the truth is we're all hypocrites in one place or another, but we ought to be on a journey of that becoming less and less true. So we're going to look at 1 John, where he says, if you know Jesus, then this is what your life ought to look like. And if your life doesn't look like this, then maybe you don't know Jesus the way you thought you did. And we're going to keep coming back to that theme over and over. A couple of things for you to know. We're going to do the Tuesdays at Grace. Uh, so that'll start on the 27th, going deeper in 1 John. And we are incredibly blessed to have Trina Bresser here. And Trina has written a book. Uh, she's actually written quite a few commentaries, but she's written a commentary on the letters of John. So this will be the book that we use. We'll have these available for you at a discounted price. So if you sign up for the class, you can do it. But uh, Trina is one of our own. She helps work in the prayer ministry. Uh, Phil helps do the uh, men's ministry. But Trina is going to lead that. That starts at 630 on the 27th. So if you want to go deeper in First John, uh, you can do that as well. And then I just want to encourage you, if you want to get a journal, uh, these are for sale at the information counter starting today. Like we actually started selling them a couple weeks ago, but you can get them today for $5. I was talking to a friend and they said, I don't really like the journals because I like to write in my Bible. And I sort of feel that way too. So here's the way I use it. I use the journals uh, for my study time. I write a lot of stuff in them, uh, more than I could ever write in the margin of my Bibles. But I also find myself, when I'm reading it out of my Bible, writing things in the margin. So you can do both, but if you don't want a journal, there's no pressure to get one. Uh, but I would love for you, as you come to Grace in the next uh, five weeks, to either bring a journal or bring your Bible and to engage with First John with us. All right, I want to share with you what we heard this morning or what they heard this morning as they prayed for you. Uh, that there are some who are looking to be equipped uh, for the work of the ministry and uh, they just need us to pray over them, to help have the tools that they need to be successful. The Lord wants to give clarity for someone who's feeling a great sense of loss. Uh, free those who have bought into bitterness or forgiveness. Uh, speak truth of the gospel to their coworkers. So if you're working in a place and you know you're supposed to be talking about Jesus and you just like some prayer for that, we'd love to do that. And that some who are just looking to find the purpose God has for them. So if any of that resonates with you, we would love for you to come down and receive prayer. There is no online prayer today, but if you need prayer, you can call the church Monday through Friday when we're open, and we would love to pray with you and to pray for you. So come on down. There's people who are trained to meet with you. Come back next week as we begin our journey in First John. God bless you. Yeah.